Hello, and welcome back to the Shadow Work Library. My name is Jessica DePazzi, and today I have a very different show for you. So for the last, oh gosh, how long has it been? Mm, several years, at least since 2019, my team and I have been working on a documentary called Dark Night of Our Soul, which you've likely heard about if you've listened to any episodes since 2019. And I've decided that I would love to share the full interviews from that documentary because when you're making a film that's 90 minutes and you interview, I think we interviewed 11 people or so, you end up with hundreds and hundreds of hours of unused footage and it was pure gold. So I wanted to share with you a couple of the heavy hitters, John Verveke in particular for this first one. We cover an entire span of interesting topics, but I would say the through line is definitely wisdom. So if you're a seeker of wisdom, which I imagine you are if you're listening to this, then you're going to love this show. Uh, Also, the YouTube version is beautiful because this was professionally shot and our director edited it it down for me. Thank you, Zach Graham Montgomery. It's gorgeous. So check that out. The audio is a little bit funny on my end because I wasn't mic'd up, but the questions are fairly irrelevant because he's just such a great interviewer. He goes off on his own. I hope you enjoy the show, and if it feels aligned for you, check out our short film. We have a 30-minute version of this uh, full feature that's ready to watch right now. We're just asking for a donation of $15 to help us finish the full feature and eventually bring it to major streamers so that we can raise awareness of shadow work and post-traumatic growth, which is the term we're using for this, for the masses. It's really the first time it's been done in this way, so if you feel inclined, that would be great. And you can find the link at either posttraumaticgrowth.film or I'll have a link for the Kickstarter in the show notes. And the campaign is running until the end of June 2023. Today is May 2023. So uh, if you could do that before then, that would be helpful. All right, y'all. Enjoy the show and thank you so much for listening. My name is John Ravicki. Okay, John, so would you tell us a little bit about what you do for a living? What is your life's work? Um, the main thing, I guess, is uh, I have sort of two things I'm doing. One is I'm a bona fide academic. I'm an associate professor at the University of Toronto in cognitive psychology and cognitive science. So I study the nature of cognition, how we learn, solve problems. I also study related phenomena like wisdom, meaning in life consciousness, mindfulness, altered states of consciousness, mystical experiences. And so that's something I'm, I've been studying as a long time as an academic. I'm also a long time practitioner. I've been practicing meditation and contemplation Tai Chi Chuan for like uh, 30 years. Um, so that's one thing I'm doing. And then starting, I guess, about, was it 2019, I started a, a, an online presence. I did a video series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Uh, in which I was addressing the issue that most people are finding increasingly finding it increasingly difficult to find meaning in life and to get a framework in which they can cultivate wisdom or perhaps even an appreciation of the sacred within a scientific worldview. And then I've been doing a lot of series um, around that and trying to get those two things, those two aspects of my life, thankfully, are mutually supportive and to try and get them even better coordinated to try and address uh, the meaning crisis that I mentioned. Um, what is it about your personality or even the events that have happened in your past life that got you interested in all these different things? 
Well, that's a really good question. Um, and so for me, the, the pivotal moment, or at least the pivotal episode, perhaps it's a better way of putting it. I was brought up in a, um, a fundamentalist Christian family. Um, and of course, I love my family. This is extended family. And so I, I'm not trying to criticize them as people. But I found, I guess, given my personality and my own line of psychosocial development, that uh, I found that experience ultimately traumatizing. Uh, it really had a, a, a sort of profound negative impact on me. But it was very sort of bivalent for me because you, you, your first religion, well, we have this term, your mother tongue, the first language you, you, you learn is with you always and it informs everything else. Well, you, can, you sort of have like a mother religion too. Um, and so it left the taste in my mouth, if I can put it that way, for transcendence and for seeking deeper connection and meaning and a, a sense for the, a, a sacred dimension to reality. But at the same time, I was traumatized by the existing religion. And then I, was, I basically set out on this path uh, to try and resolve that sort of meaning crisis I was experiencing myself. And when I was in university, I encountered the figure of Socrates and the cultivation of wisdom. And this opened up an avenue for me. And so from there, I started going down the road. But the academic study of wisdom, it drops off the table after like first year university, even within philosophy, which is ironic given that the love of wisdom is literally what philosophy means. Um, now, I went on to study philosophy because I, I valued the, the sort of meta-science and metacultural critique and the tools it was giving. But that hunger for wisdom and transcendence was missing. And so I started, I went to a place and I started learning Tai Chi Chuan and meditation and contemplation. And then that started to really satisfy that hunger uh, for wisdom and transcendence. But um, for me, as I was doing this, um, right, the, the cognitive science world was starting to move more and more towards these topics. And when I started to talk about these topics within my academic courses at the university, I was noticing that they were really catching with the students. These were the things they were like getting really fascinated in. I think I was the first person at the University of Toronto to start talking about my mindfulness within a scientific perspective. And then they started asking me to teach the courses on meditation and contemplation extracurricular, and I did that for a long time. And so I noticed this confluence, and I noticed that many of my students were resonating with that confluence, and so I started to do more and more um, about building that bridge, the bridge between science and spirituality to address the meaning crisis. I really resonate with that on a personal level. I always thought that that's what college was supposed to be like. Mm. You go and you expand, and you have these transcendent experiences. but not that for me. <laughs> uh, and uh, your case is not uh, by any means unique. Um, many of the students after, sorry, I, I, this isn't meant to be self-promotional, but many students after they're taking the classes with me, they will say something like that. This is what I wanted university to be, and I don't know why the other courses aren't like that. So, yeah, very much there's a, there's a need that's not being met right now. Now, to be fair, there's a lot of other people like me doing this kind of work. And one of the advantages, gifts of doing my series was I've got, I have been able to meet them and start interacting with them. Uh, you had mentioned meditation and contemplation. Now, meditation is something that many people are familiar with, whether they do it correctly or not. 
Uh, but contemplation is a word that you don't hear too often, and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about that. This goes right towards my academic work, but it also is um, something that I use when I'm trying to train. I talk about two languages we have to coordinate. There's a language of explaining, which you'd use in science, and then there's a language of training, which you're using when people are trying to cultivate things. So, so let me, let, let's not talk initially about meditation and contemplation. Let's talk about their common root in attention. And so what I want you to notice is that your attention is, we have a sort of a, a like a spotlight model of attention that what we do is shine our attention in it, on something and it makes it stand out. And that's right insofar as attention changes how things stand out for you, how salient they are. But there's a lot more going on. So for one thing, one of the things you can do with your attention is you can focus on me as a whole, the gestalt, or you can zoom in to a feature and you go back and forth. And that's dynamic. You're constantly doing it because of what Marlo Ponti called an optimal grip. Like you like when you're looking at my hand, depends what your what your goal is, whether or not you focus. Like let's say if you wanted to see if I was married, you might look at the ring finger. But if you want to see if I've worked with my hands a lot, you might go more gestalt. Like you're going to move in and out until you get the balance between detail and whole, and you're constantly doing that with your attention, gestalt and feature. So you're constantly doing that. But there's another thing you can do. And um, let me use an analogy for that. It's, it's one that's become a, a somewhat of a meme for my work, but I, I, it's still good. Maybe that's why it became a meme. And so I use this when I'm teaching also my students meditation. Now I want you to notice something. Think about my glasses. My glasses are literally framing my experience, They're, right? And I'm looking through them in both senses of the word. I'm looking past them and by means of them. Now, so right now, my glasses are actually transparent to me. But I can do this. Sometimes I have to step back and look at my glasses rather than looking right through them. So now my glasses are opaque. And why would I do that? Because I might want to clear some gunk off on my glasses, right? You're always mentally framing. So your mind, you're, you're not most of the time looking at your mind. You're looking through your mind at the world and you're framing it in terms of what you're focusing in on as salient, what you're focusing in on as relevant, what you're backgrounding and foregrounding. Do you see how dynamic it is? Like soon as you, and it's, and it's constantly shifting. It's like this, I call it a shifting salience landscape. So you're constantly doing that. Now, just like your glasses are transparent to you and you might not notice how they're distorting your vision, your mental framing, can be transparent to you and you're not noticed. And what you do in meditation is you first learn to step back and look at your mental framing rather than looking through it. This is really what's meant by centering your attention. It doesn't mean just focusing, it's you're stepping back and looking at. And you also are trying to break up the gestalt patterns into the featural details, right? So you're, you're stepping back and looking at the mind Right? And then you, instead of just gestalting, you're also going in and trying to break up the features, notice the patterns and processes that are going on, because you're trying to see how that might be distorting. Now think about this. That's a valuable thing to do in meditation, but what would you need to do in order to see if you've actually cleaned your glasses? What would you need to do? Ask someone else. Oh, no. <laughs> what I would think you'd do first is put them on and see if you see differently. Right? That's what contemplation is. Contemplation is going the other way. It's trying to look more deeply into reality 
and to grab the, the big picture, the gestalt, and to see if you can see better than you could before. That's contemplation. The word contemplation, you can hear the word temple in contemplation. Temple means to, to look out, to look up to the sky. Um, the, the Latin contemplatio is a translation of the Greek word theoria, which means to look deeply. It's where we get our word theory from, to look deeply into things. And so what you have to do is you actually have to cycle between these. You have to step back and see if it's distorting. You make changes and see if that makes a difference in how you see the world. And if you see the world and you start to see how, more how it really is, that guides you in saying, oh, I bet this is distorting my vision. And then you see what you do, you cycle back and forth between meditation and contemplation. One of my criticisms of how the West is appropriating or misappropriating mindfulness traditions is they tend to only concentrate on one of these, typically meditation. If you look at the ecology of practices in cultures where these mindfulness practices are more indigenous, what you find is people have a whole set of practices. They have meditative practices, contemplative practices, moving practices, and interpersonal social practices, because you need to be cultivating them all together because they act like checks and balances on each other. Okay, that's great. I want to step back a bit and talk about the state of the world right now so we can for sure cover why this is important. So we all know we're living in an interesting time. It seems cordial. But it's stressful. It can be stressful. People are on edge. Uh, there's a lot going on. You can see that with suicide rates, especially mm-hmm. in the last couple of years, going absolutely nuts. And um, I was wondering, this is a bit of a leading question, why you think the reason for that is. So uh, in science, you, you find things that seem disconnected, and you do what's called an inference to the best explanation. You try and come up with the best explanation for all of these disconnected things that unites them together. That's how you afford understanding. So I have a proposal, and in that sense I think it's a theory that's borne out by evidence, that uh, a lot of the, the, you can see a lot of what I call symptoms, almost like the way a doctor looks at various things and uh, through them sees an underlying disease. I call them symptoms of the meaning crisis. This goes to work I did with Christopher Mastipriaccio, Philip Misovic. Um, And the idea is that you can see a lot of markers of distress as negative symptoms. You can also see a lot of markers of positive response. And you can give a unified explanation of this in terms of how people are responding to the meaning crisis either in a malfunctional way or in a functional way. So as you you already mentioned, you know, uh, suicide, especially among the younger generations and going up, child suicide is now becoming an issue, which is a, like, that's a profound marker that something's going wrong. Um, interestingly, Tatiana Schnell has, Schnell has got, provided good evidence that there's a direct line between a sense of loss of meaning and suicide that doesn't have to pass through clinical depression. So we used to think people are clinically depressed and they sort of sense meaninglessness or meaninglessness tri- triggers cl- clinical depression and that leads to suicide. But it looks like, no, people can go directly from the sense of meaninglessness into suicide. There was a, um, a survey in Great Britain, I think it was 2017, something like 89% of the adults surveyed thought their lives were meaningless. Um, and uh, there's overwhelming evidence that that is predictive of a lot of things going wrong. 
the survey also showed another symptom of the meeting crisis, a loneliness epidemic, right? As you mentioned, a mental health ep epidemic. We're getting, you know, rise, mark, you know, rise, we're getting an increase in uh, the markers for depression, measurements of depression, anxiety disorders related. Uh, we're getting various addiction crises, the opioid crisis. So these are all uh, markers of this meaning crisis. You get um, the, the rise. It's funny, I was actually interviewed uh, by Rebel Wisdom just at the beginning of COVID, and I was predicting a rise in what Jules Evans calls, he, he resurrected the term conspirituality, which is a mixture of conspiracy theories and spirituality practices like QAnon and things like that. And you, you see that um, as another marker. But you also see some positive responses. You see the rise. You see uh, the rise of, and we've talked about it already, although I have some criticisms of it, but you see the rise of the mindfulness movement as an attempt to uh, respond to that. You see the rise of um, Hellenistic philosophies, like Stoicism is going through this huge revival. Um, you see the attempts to import Buddhism and, Stoic, uh, Buddhism and Taoism into the West in order um, and, and you see the emergence, and I get to be involved with these people, of new communities, uh, Rafe Kelly's uh, Evolve Move Play, where people are integrated. He does, where he takes people out into the, the woods and they do parkour, right? And then they do mindfulness and they do martial arts and then they do campfire discourse, where people are doing all of this to try and enhance meaning in life. So this whole, it, it, like that would look sort of chaotic and disparate, but if you posit that all of this can be seen as a response to a profound uh, sense of loss of meaning or meaning being under threat, meaning in life, then you can explain all of those in terms of this idea of the meaning crisis. And so I would suggest that um, the reason why a lot of people are under stress right now and pursuing various strategies to try and intensify uh, meaning is ex exactly that meaning crisis. Why the loss of meaning? Have you identified a cause of this? <laughs> well, <laughs> I did 25 hours of lecture on the Awakening for the Meaning Crisis uh, to try <laughs> and give an answer to that question. So uh, I will do my best to try and collapse that into a couple of minutes of a response. There's two basic um, dimensions to answering a question that are really important. One is a structural dimension. What is meaning? What are we talking about and why does it come under threat? Why is it at risk? And then the second is a historical. So let me talk about the first because I need the first to explain the second. So here's the basic idea. And this, is, this, this for me is, um, is where I'm placing all my epistemic and career bets because for me this is, this is the linchpin, um, which is the centrality of meaning. Um, so it goes like this. You are a cognitive agent. You can move in many domains and solve many problems within many domains. You're really, really interesting. And I don't mean to make you sound like a specimen, but I find that so fascinating about human beings that they have this capacity. Um, and what's, what's at, what seems to be, I would argue, and what I published on at the core of this is this really unique ability we have. And, we're and why it strikes me as so unique is it's the thing we're trying to give artificial intelligence and we haven't figured out how to do it. And we're, this, is, this is the, although we're making progress. So 
and I want you to notice that you're doing it right now, and it goes back to that salience landscaping I was talking about. So the amount of information that's actually available to you in the technical definition of information is combinatorially explosive. It's astronomically vast. Do you know the amount of information you have in your long-term memory, all the possible combinations, connections you could make? Astronomically vast. You know all the sequences of behavior you could put together? Astronomically vast. But you know what you're doing right now? Out of all of the information out there, all the information in here, and all the possibilities of how you could behave, you're zeroing in on the relevant information like that. Like that. How do you do it? It's a really hard question. I dedicated my life to trying to figure it out. Now think about how you need that moment by moment by moment. And notice that it's not static. You're constantly shifting. And notice what's going on even, right? And this gives you a bit of a clue, I would argue, as to how you're doing it. Part of your mind is trying to select and focus in, and part of your mind wants to wander off and think about other things. And so part of your mind is trying to open up possibilities, and then another part is selecting from all those possibilities, right? And it's doing this, and that's just like the process of evolution. You have variation and selection, variation and selection. So notice what that does. It makes certain things about me and what I'm saying stand out. And other things, you don't even consider them. Now that's, that's what's so cool. It's, this sounds like a Zen Cohen. You know what makes you intelligent? Your ability to ignore most of the information that's available to you. So what you're doing, and this is a very technical sense, is you're biasing your attention. That's how you're intelligent. But you pay a price for that. You're biasing your attention. And there's there's, are, you're always, always subject to this vulnerability that that bias is going to turn out to be a prejudice, that you actually missed the information you needed. Every year, until very recently, because phones have made this go down. But until the advent of cell phones, this would regularly happen. People would go into a dark place where they knew there was flammable gas dispersed, and they knew they needed light, so they would strike a match. And what were they focusing on? What was relevant to them is that the match is a source of light. And what they ignored was a match is also a source of heat, and they would blow themselves up. Right? So we are always sub... So the very processes, these evolving dynamic processes, that make us intelligent also make us perpetually susceptible to self-deception, self-destructive self-deception. And we're doing it all the time. A great place people realize this is in their romantic lives. They say, oh, I know what I did wrong there. I'm going to do the exact opposite with this person. And then they get into it and they go, oh, I'm doing it again. I'm doing the same thing again. Oh, although it's very hard for them to see it from the inside. So across cultures, across historical contexts, people have developed ecologies of practices for interacting with this dynamic, self-evolving relevance realization in order to try and ameliorate the foolishness, that self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. But there's a positive side. Because this is so central to you, when people talk about feeling connected, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about that relevance realization. It's relevant to me. It's salient to me. It draws me in. Relevance is always about what you're caring about as opposed to what you're ignoring. And so people also, not only do they need to ameliorate the foolishness, they want to enhance the connectedness. So they also have ecologies of practices that not only ameliorate the foolishness, but enhance the connectedness 
That connectedness is what meaning in life is. Ameliorating foolishness, enhancing connectedness, enhancing meaning in life, that's wisdom. This is what I do with my students. So that's the structural problem. We need wisdom. It's not optional for us to ignore it, right? And if you ask people, do you want to be wiser? They usually say, well, yeah, of course. Do you want more meaning? Yeah. Do you want to be less self-deceptive, self-destructive? Yeah. But I'll ask my students, I'll say, where do you go for information? Oh, social media, the internet. Yeah, yeah. Where do you go for knowledge? A little bit slower. Uh, science, the universities. Then I'll say, where do you go for wisdom? And there's a silence. Some of them, will, a little bit, a, a shrinking minority will say, maybe my religion, but they're not very confident about that. And that is the historical issue. These ecologies of practices in which we cultivate wisdom have to be situated into a worldview that homes them, that valorizes them, that provides institutions and communities. When I asked you what would you do, you said I'd ask somebody if there was gunk on my glasses, somebody else. That's right, we need a community. Transformation requires community, it require, and a community requires a shared worldview, and it requires, right, so you got a shared worldview, a community, an ecology of practices, that's what religion provided. And what we see, historically, for a lot of reasons, is the, is the decline, the loss of what uh, Peter Berger calls the, our sacred canopy. I'm not advocating for Christianity, I'm not doing that. But what I'm saying is, when we lost it for what the political and metaphysical and scientific reasons that we lost it, we lost all of the functionality it provided for us in the cultivation of wisdom and meaning. And here's the problem for us. The scientific worldview, and let's, let, I want you to remember, I'm a scientist, I, I, I love science, but the scientific worldview can't address that problem. And here's, here's what I mean. The scientific worldview has no explanation for science itself or for the meaning-making practices of the scientists that make science possible. We and our science don't actually fit in to the scientific worldview. We're a hole, a gap, like a black hole within that worldview. And so the very thing that is so successful, so beautifully successful in so many domains, is precisely incapable of addressing this historical loss of a worldview that homes wisdom and meaning. I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to ask you if being a part of the scientific community can mimic a spiritual community. Because it seems like there is a religion of science happening also. There can be. Um, and there, there have even been historical attempts, like August, uh, August Comte, to try and do that. Um, and there are, I mean, one of the things you see in the history of the West is as Christianity receded, um, you, get, you get the attempt to fill in that vacuum with pseudo-religious ideologies, political movements. You know, I would recommend very strongly that people consider that communism and Nazism are not just political phenomena. They're also pseudo-religious phenomena in a profound way. And so, I mean, and there's various ideologies left and right that people use, and you can see various academic communities trying to plug in uh, the sense of the sacred into the science by sort of fusing 
you know, a, a particular political worldview, liberalism or leftism or right, right-wingism or whatever, right, to try and do that. Because science per se can't do that. The attempt to turn science into a religious framework, which some people called scientism, um, you see it happening with the, with the, the academic community, but on, on its own, science really can't do that much. So it's usually glued together with um, a, a not scientifically based allegiance to uh, a particular socio-political, economic, uh, ideological vision of what the good life is and what good people are and what's the good, uh, what's the good future that we should be pursuing and, and things like that. So when we're talking about science and spirituality and one of your passions for bringing them closer together, um, one of the things you had mentioned on your first episode of your series is the different types of knowing. And I that's yeah. coming up for me is like, I think people need to know about that. Would you mind going through some? Thank you for bringing that up because that, that, that goes exactly towards um, the kind of bridging. Uh, that's a wonderful question. I deeply appreciate that. The, um, and it's, it's funny. <laughs> You're, and I don't mean this in any way to denigrate my, 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 my two boys who are like um, <laughs> the jewels of my life, but your theories are kind of like your children and you, and you don't know which one, and you, when, you, you don't know which one of these is going to take off. And it's really interesting that this has been something that really, that people have found very central. So the idea is, and this is one of the ways in which science is inadequate. The idea is, is that there's four kinds of knowing and Let's start with the one that's typified in science and that's prevalent in our culture, especially in ideological movements, which is propositional knowing. So this is knowing that um, you, you, pra you practice this knowing by asserting propositions. You say things like, I believe that the earth is round. That's a proposition and I believe it. And what I do is I gather evidence uh, to, uh, for that particular proposition and if the evidence is enough I start to talk about and it gives me explanatory power I start talking about a theory and I get a, a sense of a conviction a sense of conviction that it's true um, and of course ideologies make those same kinds of moves that's propositional knowing and for a very long time because of the scientific revolution and Descartes and because also of things going on in the Protestant Reformation we have started to think that that's all, all knowing is just propositional knowing and we've done, we've done similar reductions. We've reduced faith to belief. We treat them as if they're synonyms. And we think that the most important thing for explaining somebody's behavior are, are their beliefs. And so we get this massive reduction. Now what's happened in the cognitive science that I, I'm privileged to participate in, there's been a revolution going on in the last uh, you know, 30, 40 years. It's called 4E cognitive science. We can get into that at some point if you want. But the main idea is I draw from that is that there are other kinds of knowing. So there's procedural, which isn't knowing that something is the case, it's knowing how to do something. It's knowing how to catch a ball. It's knowing how to kiss somebody, right? Uh, which isn't the same thing as having a bunch of beliefs about kissing. Um, that's why you could read a lot of books on kissing and it wouldn't make you a good kisser, it wouldn't make you a good martial artist. It can help, but it's, not, it's nowhere near enough. Knowing how has a lot more to do not with theories, it has to do with skills, about how to right, build up sensory motor patterns of interaction with the world. And, and the sense of realness there isn't the sense of truth, it's the sense of power. 
Like when you have a skill, you have expertise. And that's why you give authority to a doctor, because they have a sense of skills. Now, obviously, they have beliefs. But if they had the beliefs without the skills, would you go to the doctor? No way, right? So that's procedural knowing. It's knowing how. Interestingly, the, the forms of memory associated with the two kinds of knowing are distinct. Your semantic memory, your memory of facts, is distinct from your procedural memory, your knowledge of skills. So you can lose one without losing the other. Um, so now related to that um, is an, another one, which is think of what you need for your skills. You need what's called situational awareness. So is your skill of swimming relevant right now? Should you activate it? Should you, get, should you start swimming? No, because it's not relevant here. I mean, if the room suddenly flooded with water, it could be. So you need situational awareness to tell you which skills to activate, which skills you might need to acquire. Right? So what's this situational awareness? What kind of knowing is that? Well, this is knowing what it's like to be here right now, the here nowness. So this is, remember I mentioned it? This is your knowing by salience landscaping. How are you salience landscaping? How are you sizing up this situation? Right? What's your state of mind? Right? So you have this, this episodic memory, which is a combination of your state of mind and the situation. So think of the difference in your memory between remembering that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and your memory of your last birthday. One is just this fact that just hangs out. The other is you recall the situation, a scene, what stands out, what's foregrounded, what's backgrounded, and you recall your corresponding and co-determining state of mind. So you recall your perspective. This is perspectival knowing. Now, its sense of realness isn't the conviction of truth or power. We know what it is because, and I do work on this, just published some papers on it with Dan Schiappi, right, in terms of virtual reality. So what are people looking for? They want the game to be real. What are they looking for? It's called a sense of presence. So that perspectival knowing gives you a sense of realness when you have a sense that you're really here, really now, really connected, really present. It's a sense of presence as a realness. Okay. What's under that? What's under that is you don't come into this situation as a blank slate, contrary to what John Locke said. You come in with your biology, your biological evolutionary heritage, and your culture shaping you and the environment to fit each other. This chair is sittable for me. I can sit on it. That's an affordance. It affords sitting. It wouldn't afford sitting for an elephant, right? This glass, this glass is graspable by me. Evolution has shaped me to pick up objects like this, and then culture has taught me to shape my hand this way and, and made objects that fit my hand. So this, if, this, for me, this is graspable. The graspability is not in the glass, it's not in my hand, but in the way my hand and the glass have been shaped to each other by evolution and by culture and by my ongoing state of mind. This is an idea from Gibson, and it's at the core of 4E cognitive science, right? That you have... Right, the way you and your environment are co-shaping each other and opening up a whole network of affordances that are available to you for interacting with the world. This is your participatory knowing. This is your knowing by being. This is the relationship between your agency and how the world is disclosed to you as an arena for action. And they're mutually belonging together. Now, you have semantic memory for propositional knowing. You have procedural memory right, for procedural knowing. You have episodic memory for perspectival knowing. What kind of memory do you have for this participatory belonging in the world? A profound kind of memory you call yourself. 
your sense of self, your sense of identity. This is a deep kind of memory, a deep kind of knowing. So when you know something by binding yourself to it, perhaps the way you should know your partner, right? So your self-knowledge and your knowledge of your partner are bound up together and they co-evolve and they shape each other, right? And the two people, right, more and more conform to each other and afford each other's transformation. So, you know, love is a... The, the, the medievals had this, that love is its own way of knowing. Love is a primary example of participatory knowing. The kind of knowing that you can only have by loving something. Right? So, the participatory knowing sets out the affordances. The perspectival knowing makes certain affordances salient and stand out. So, and then that activates what skills you're going to bring into the interaction. As, and then as you're interacting, you bring out the facts that are relevant to your interaction. And that's how they all work. Sci the scientific worldview locks us here in the propositional and most of that relevance realization, that connectedness is happening on, at the levels of the non-propositional knowing. This is another profound reason why science qua science can't give us the meaning. Now what science can do is give us the science of those kinds of knowing so that we can better engineer the psychotechnologies, the practices that will enhance them, that will make them wiser and more meaningful, enhance that connectedness. So this is taking me to altered states of consciousness. I would love to talk about that. Well, of course, you should. <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> should. Um, I think that so many of us are stuck focusing on the wrong things, or just at least very narrow things. We mm. focus on our TV screens, social media, and the few people that we have in our very small circles now. How do you feel that, um, how do you feel altered states of consciousness fall into helping us with this meaning crisis? So that is also uh, a really profound question. And I would, I would suggest to you that the renaissance of interest in psychedelics, both academically and culturally, is another symptomatic response to the meaning crisis. Uh, people are craving enhanced connectedness, a kind of union and self-transcendence. And as you said, they're trying to break out of too narrow a framing on reality. And that's why uh, they're seeking them out. And of course, there's been a, you know, cross cultures, cross history, a long-standing connection between psychedelics and mystical experience. So they're not the same and, and the cultivation of wisdom. Um, so, we have to be very cautious about this uh, because we have the very thing that, the very reason why people, and this is almost ironic, the very reason why people might take psychedelics is the kind of misframing they could bring to the psychedelics, uh, which is they could get too focused and too narrow uh, a framing of uh, the psychedelic experience. So, Altered states of consciousness, psychedelic experience, mystical experience. One of the ways of thinking about them, um, one of the ways I've, I've been arguing out with lots of people uh, like Daniel Craig and others, we've been working on this idea, Jensen Kim, a bunch of people, um, is I want you to remember an experience that probably happens to you every day and I want to use that and put it on a continuum with altered states. So 
You've had an aha moment. Can you remember one recently where you realized, oh, I'm, I'm looking at this completely the wrong way. That, that aha experience where you've been thinking about something, you go, right, I should think about it this way. I was, the wrong, I was concentrating on the wrong thing. The fact that you asked me that question means you've had that experience. So I study this. I study, this is called insight. And notice what it means to see in, to see into something, right? So what's happening in an insight experience? No, notice that we often talk about it like a flash of insight. What's happening is your salience landscape is suddenly shifting. Often they'll represent it in movies with things coming in and out of the foreground and the background, right? So what's happening is a very dynamic reconfiguration of your salience landscape, right? So you ask people, well, what grows from an acorn, an oak? What's this? Stroke. Uh, what's the gray stuff that comes off fire, smoke? Uh, what's the white of an egg called? And people say, the yolk. Oh. <laughs> and you were going to say it, right? <laughs> But the answer is the white of the egg. But what were you doing? You were concentrating on the oak sound. You foregrounded that as relevant. And then so you looked for the part of the egg that has the oak sound in it. And you said yolk. And then you laughed because humor is related to insight because you realized that you had misframed the situation. Okay. Now, we are doing that all the time because, like I said, the relevance realization process is constantly evolving and sometimes though that evolution goes through this dynamic shift of self-correction this is why insight is so associated with wisdom if you ask people could somebody be uh, not that educated but really wise they go yeah I think so what if they weren't very artistic could they be wise yeah I think so could they be not very insightful and wise they go no they got to be insightful to be wise there's a deep connection there because they realize that insight is a little micro moment of increased wisdom. It's a little moment of self-transcendence. It's a little moment when you're breaking out of that narrow frame. And you've had a moment where you realized, oh, I was looking at it the wrong way. Now, what I want you to consider is that capacity for self-transcendence, self-correction, right? And it comes with a change in consciousness. There's a flash. It's on a continuum. So if you get a bunch of these insights, at least that's what I published with Leo Ferraro and Arian Herrera Bennett in 2018, and you ch start chaining them together, so an insight leads to another insight, leads to another insight. Like think about somebody playing jazz. They're playing jazz, and they pick up, and they break frame and make a new frame, and then they have to break the frame and make, and they're constantly, they get into what's called the flow state. Athletes seek this out because it's optimal. You're at your very best, and it feels like the most amazing experience. Like, and you're at, right? So you're in the zone. And I get it, like as a martial artist, I get it when I'm lecturing. And notice what people say. It's like they now talk about the whole world being super salient. They feel at one with their environment. They feel deeply connected. That's that enhanced meaning, right? And, and flow states is when they, they start to feel like they're, they're, they have that really deep connectedness, but they're self-transcending. They report a loss of self-consciousness. Not consciousness. You know that nattering, narrative, nanny in your head? How do I look? How are people thinking of me? What's going on? Do they like me? All of that, all of that goes away because they're so at one. And like when you're a martial artist, like if you're sparring and you're in, the, in your flow, like it's so amazing. You know at one level you're making all this effort, but your hand just goes for the block and you just find the opening for the punch, right? Or, right? Or, it's, so that's the flow state. Notice how that's already a profound altered state of consciousness. Now, one of the interesting features about flow, Csikszentmihalyi has studied this for decades, is it's a universal. 
It happens to people regardless of their gender, their socioeconomic status, their language, their cultural background. Across all of this, people describe the flow experience in almost the same, the same terms at the same level of detail. So it's something profound's going on because it's enhancing right, this, this relevance realization, this connectedness, this capacity for self-transcendence. Now take flow and its altered state of consciousness and ramp it up. Instead of flowing as I'm sparring, right, or as I'm writing poetry, or as I'm playing jazz, what have I flowed at the level of my, my relationship to reality as a whole? What have I got into a flow state at the level of my worldview? So I was doing what Blake said. I was seeing a world in a grain of sand. The, everything is interpenetrate. And I'm getting this flow that's from the gestalt to the feature and in and out to the center of my psyche, out to the depths of the world. That's a flow experience. And imagine how that's going to transform your salience landscaping and how it's, how it's going to even more reduce that, that self-consciousness. It's going to be like a super awe experience. Those are mystical experiences. And, and then there's an overlap between psychedelic experiences. And Aidan Lyon, I just I interviewed him for my, one of my channels. He's writing a book. It's coming out called Psychedelic Experience. And he points out that psychedelic experiences don't have to use substances. There's other ways of triggering them. And so you've got, you, so you got insight, flow, psychedelic experiences, mystical experiences. And then when mystical experiences put people in touch with but what they call the really real, the most real, this is what's so fascinating about it. They will transform their lives, their roles, their relationships, often their occupation, in order to conform more and more to that really real. They'll invert everything. So normally what we do is the everyday is the real, and anything that's off, that's aberrant from that, like a dream, or when we're drunk, we go, that's not real. People do the opposite in these experiences. They have these experiences that are really real, and they say, that's real, and all of this is less real. And they change their lives because we want to be in touch with what's most real. And so altered states of consciousness are, are, are so sought after now because they give us the capacity for enhancing all of that continuum from insight to transformative experience giving us the self-transcendence, the opportunity to get profound insight, cultivate wisdom, and transform our sense of self. All the kinds of knowing. And so, of course, we're seeking it. But here's the danger. Here's the danger, right? If you don't have that situated within an already existing ecology of practices in which you're cultivating wisdom, and a community that is giving you a worldview, you can spin off. You can spin off from these altered states. You can go down various rabbit holes. You can get into echo chambers. You can come up with wacky metaphysics, all kinds of strange things happening. So, and I, I, I get into a little bit of trouble, uh, not like officially, but with the university. And also I, I think I piss people off a little bit because I say two things and it sounds like contradiction. I say we should not prohibit substances. Doesn't work, doesn't work. I'm really confident about that. Doesn't work. Okay? But we should also license the use of them, like we do for a car or a handgun. 
These are powerful tools. You don't give a five-year-old a chainsaw. You don't give somebody, in fact, who doesn't know how to use a chainsaw a chainsaw. If you're going to cut through the cords of your life because you're seeking profound transformation, you better know how to use that tool. Right? It's called the mind sword in, you know, in some of the Buddhist traditions. You, know, you, you better learn. Like, and that's what decisive means, by the way. It means to cut. Right? If, you, if you don't know how to wield that properly, there's a potential for getting into some very significant self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. So I think that if we're cultivating altered states of consciousness through mindfulness practices, through movement practices, uh, through group practices, through the use of substances, through breathing techniques, that should always be properly situated within a sapiential, sacred community. I can see the problem with that argument where many things that are licensed start to be, become really rigid, so I would imagine that the whole licensing process of this would look very different than anything else. I mean, if we talk about doulas, for example, <laughs> yeah. fighting against license, licensing, at least in the U.S., for a long time because of that. Yes. So about the person and, and how can you license or restrict how that process goes for each human? Well, we do it for other things. So here's my counterexample, uh, and you know this has become you know the case, and there was this discussion around it. But we do it with psychotherapy. We like it's now the law that you can't practice psychotherapy unless you are approved by the college. Uh, and the idea here is because we're engaging in something that has the capacity to you know radically transform people, and therefore there is a power, and we have to make sure that people have both the scientific and the skill, and I would even add perhaps the moral training uh, uh, education so that they will wield that power responsibly. Thank you. Okay, I want to back up to something about insight. That it was great that you had brought together the, you said humor is, humor and insight somehow go together? Yes. So humor, from all the people that we've interviewed so far, has come up. Humor and martial art are yes. interestingly enough. Um, and it was funny, I was thinking about the aha moment, how, how it's like a ha-ha moment. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, that's great, I like that. Did, did you come up with that? I haven't I heard... did. That's beautiful, I like that. <laughs> did you see that on video? You guys got that? <laughs> so, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about humor and how that plays a role oh. in cognitive science, but also in some of your more spiritual um, background. Very much. And one of the things that intrigued me is, you know, the cross-cultural sort of study of uh, spiritual traditions that have humor in them. Zen has a lot of humor in it, and others where the humor is much more, much more backgrounded and, and, and held down. So, humor. Uh, th these three things are, t are are related: humor, metaphor, and insight. Um, and and uh, they don't come naturally to human beings. We have to practice it with kids for a long time. So try and get a four-year-old to tell a joke. They're not very good at it. Try and get them to understand metaphor. They're not very good at it. And their insight capacity is also not that explicit to them. So one of the ways of thinking about this uh, goes to work uh, that's been really developed well by Ian McGilchrist. I, I was privileged to have a conversation with him about, uh, but it lines up with work um, Kunios, uh, Beeman, Bowden, a whole bunch of people. Uh, they have a book called The Eureka Factor, um, having to do with the relationship between the hemispheres. Um, so, 
we were talking about like your ability to solve problems, and humor is actually making use of the problem-solving ability. So I am getting there, right? Um, now there's two kinds of problems you're facing all the time. One is a problem that's very familiar to you; it's very well defined. Like a prototypical example is a multiplication problem. You know what kind of problem it is, you know the actions you're supposed to perform, you know when you're doing it right, you know when it's doing wrong, you know what the result's supposed to look like. It's a very well-defined problem. Now compare solving a multiplication problem with going on a successful first date. What's the rule there? So how, what's the initial state? Well, you're with some stranger. Okay, what kind of problem is this? Uh, well, what should I do? I don't know. Um, like when I was dating, I, 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 I remember that the advice my friends would give me was so useless. It was like, you know, look at her eyes, but not too much. Laugh at her jokes, but not too often. Try to be funny, but not too, ask questions, but it's like, ah, right? Um, and so these are called ill-defined problems. And ill-defined problems are pervasive in your environment. And what your brain is really struggling to do, again, the framing, is try and convert as many of those ill-defined problems into well-defined problems that you can build up habits and routines for, right? Left hemisphere is about well-defined problems, step-by-step, step, narrow focus, attention to detail. Not language, the way people say. Language is in both hemispheres. And that's stuff about drawing on the right side of your brain, and you have an artist in your right hemisphere, and you have some sort of fascist in your left hemisphere. That's all ridiculous. But the, the left hemisphere tends to focus on well-defined problems. The right tends to focus on ill-defined problems. So instead of focusing on detail, it reaches for the gestalt. So think of, like, think of a classic ill-defined problem. A predator. Something's attacking you. Like, you don't, oh, well, what kind of predator is it? Let's get very clear. You're dead, right? So you want to do open up. You want a gestalt. You, it's ill-defined, you want some very coarse-grained things, you want to grab associations as fast as you can. So what typically happens when people come into situations that are very ill-defined is you can see activity being initially predominant in the, left, uh, the right hemisphere. Um, now what happens in insight is you come to a problem and you think you know how to frame it. Oh yes, I know how to do this. And the left hemisphere is very dominant and then you realize I don't know how to do this. And you'll see the aha moment is when activity shifts from the left to the right. And then what happens in the right is in here you're 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 working within a frame. And in here you're going, ah, oh, that frame's not, and now you're looking for a frame. And then when you get an alternative frame, you bring it back, you reframe your problem, and that that that's aha. Something else that does that is metaphor. Metaphor also does that shift. So when I say, and we and, and notice, notice how much your cognition is drenched in metaphor. I just did it, by the way. So you'll say things like, um, we're halfway through this interview. Halfway. Way? Through? We're not moving through space. The interview. I hope it's not too hard, John. I hope, right? I, I hope you're seeing what I'm saying. I hope you're getting it. I hope you're understanding it. I hope you're, right? You see? In fact, try to say anything profound and meaningful to somebody without invoking a metaphor, because you're trying to afford insight. 
This is the work of Lakoff and Johnson, although I have some criticisms of the specifics of their theory. Okay, so metaphor and insight. And we use metaphor, we use propositional metaphors to try and trigger non-propositional insight. So, and of course Shakespeare is an exemplar of this. Humor involves metaphor, when it's verbal humor, of some kind, right? And it involves a sudden reframing. You have to get the punchline. You have to have the aha moment. That's why people will often retrospectively see a failure of insight as something funny. They'll go, oh, ha, ha. Okay. So humor is a, like one of the things you're doing when somebody gets a joke right is you're playing with things you know don't live, leave alphabet soup on the you know boiling on the stove it could spell disaster okay it's a bad joke but <laughs> but the point is notice how i'm playing right on two different meanings and moving between them and you got to shift the meaning right and you got to reframe you have to have that insight and you do it retrospectively and it alleviates the tension between like there's, a, there's an initial problem and then you resolve it with insight and you play with sort of the metaphorical aspects of language and you've got humor. And then with other humor that's nonverbal, we're doing sort of something analogously, I would argue, with like perspectival knowing, things like that. So humor, metaphor, insight are bound together and you can see why people who are seeking transformation would rely on them because they're that what you're doing is you're trying to fuel and prime the engine of cognitive flexibility, of your ability to reframe uh, right, and, and, and to alter what's salient and relevant to you in a way that connects to you, that matters to you, that's meaningful to you. And of course, that's going to help you take ill-defined situations, like when something traumatic has happened to us, or when some opportunity that's golden has suddenly opened up to us. Should I get involved with that person? Should I try that new career? We're gonna to turn to these as a way of trying to enhance our ability to deal with ill-defined situations. Why do you believe so many people are resistant to taking their glasses off and seeing what's on there? <laughs> Metaphorically. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, part of it is Part of it is cultural. We have truncated and reduced people's sense of their mind and their self. And those aren't identical, but they're related. And so we, people don't, when people don't have the ability to access that cognitive flexibility, and when they're in a meaning scarcity, this is called scarcity mentality. When human beings face any significant scarcity of food, water, of you know, friendship, relationship, meaning, they become very rigid, they become very narrow, they become very short-term in their thinking. Um, this is why, you know, sort of, you know, blaming people for bad behavior because they're poor is is perhaps getting things the wrong way around, right? Instead, right, you think of people in scarcity. So if we've taken all of the meaning and wisdom machinery away, and we've really reduced people's sense of what they're what they are. You are your beliefs, and they're shrunk down to here, and they're starving. Of course, they're going to be resistant to taking their glasses off. They're going to be rigid and resistant, and they're, in fact, they're going to double down um, on 
holding on to the beliefs with which they identify. If you feel comfortable talking about this, I'm not sure if this is your area of expertise. So Rebel Wisdom. Yes. They talk about sense making. Yes. Sense making and meaning making. What's the relationship between these two things? <laughs> um, so they're, they're, they're pr they overlap to a great degree. So sense making was a term coined, uh, I, I believe by maybe it was Oshmel, but it was made prominent by Francisco Varela, who is one of the, the pioneers of 4E cognitive science, and then by my former colleague, uh, uh, Evan Thompson, who is like, if you want to understand 4E cognitive science, you have to look at Evan's work. E Evan is brilliant and profound. Um, and it was, it was a loss uh, when uh, he, he left uh, the University of Toronto to go to UBC. Um, so they coined this term of sense-making, and the, the basic idea is this, that even a paramecium, right, is doing, it's detecting its environment, right, and it's adapting and responding, and so in its sensory motor behavior, it's, it is treating, it's not seeing, it doesn't have consciousness or anything like that, but it's detecting this molecule as food. Food isn't part of physics. Like if you look in a physics textbook, you won't, you won't find a definition for food. Food is an affordance relationship between this chemical and this, the autopoiesis, the self-making of the paramecium. The paramecium, because it's constantly taking care of itself because it's a living thing, it's caring about this. I don't mean full-blown emotion, but there's a kind of caring very small scale, right? But there's a kind of caring, of, and it's also, that molecule is poison. So it swims away from that one and swims towards this one. So it's doing sense-making. It's making sense of its, right, of its environment. Now, if you lift that sense-making up into what we could call kinds of knowing, then the sense-making, I would argue, is meaning-making. In this time right now where people are trying to make sense of so much, why do you, do you feel that this is a skill that people could afford to get better at? Um, I would be, I'd be really strong about that. I would say it's a necessity. Um, if you do not get better at wading through all the bullshit, and I use that in a very technical sense, maybe you can ask me about that, but if we do not get better, and one of the, one of the symptoms of the meaning crisis, we track this in the book, is people feel like bullshit and bullshitting is expanding, both quantitatively, there's more of it, and it's in more domains, and it's, and people are getting more and more shameless about the bullshitting, which is really egregious. If you don't do something about that toxicity, right, the way that that is radically undermining your capacity to connect to reality, and exacerbating making you more and more prone to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. If you don't do anything about that, given the way right, social media is complexifying and with it the bullshitting is complexifying and permeating your life and percolating into the depths of the psyche in ways you're not aware of, if you're watching, if you're using lots of social media, I will predict that you are suffering more depression and anxiety. I'm confident about that. If you don't do something to address and ameliorate that, I strongly predict it's going to get worse for you with time. And not only with you as an individual, but with you and your group.
Would you explain echo chambers? Sure. So remember we talked about, you know, the way we, we, we have to focus in? And, and, and these are very adaptive. Now one of the things you do, and I do too, is we do what's called the confirmation bias. Now in a lot of environments, this is adaptive. So I want, I want to understand that. I want you to understand that. But what does it mean? Well, what does it mean is generally we don't look for information that challenges or disconfirms our belief. We look for information that supports it. That's confirmation bias. Again, one more time, right? In a lot of environments, messy environments, complex environments, right? That's adaptive. That's why we do it. But it makes us vulnerable to environments that aren't ones we evolved to fit, like the internet, where we can rapidly get access to hundreds and hundreds of people confirming our belief in something. And then when that goes to that starvation for meaning, and we don't want to give up any beliefs, we can just dig in and then we can, we can just do this. We, I can reinforce your confirmation bias, you can reinforce mine. My, my collaborator and good friend Leo Ferraro, he calls this confirmation porn. We can get into this kind of pornography of con con just confirming and confirming and we get locked in and then we more and more identify with it because you're telling me, yeah, yeah, that's the way the world is. And so I more and more, and then we just cycle in. This is uh, a phenomenon that my friend and colleague, uh, Mark Lewis, in his work on addiction calls reciprocal narrowing. And then I think that the, uh, and I, I said this to Mark, I think the Platonic wisdom tradition talks about an opposite thing we can cultivate, which is reciprocal opening. So echo chambers are reciprocal narrowing. And when, look, think what happens to the addict. The addict loses cognitive flexibility, and so their options in the world go down. So the world gets more and more narrow, and then they internalize that, and then they get more and more narrow. And that until I can't be any other than I am, the world can't be any other than it is, and that's addiction. So this echo chambering is very analogous to that reciprocal narrowing that's going on in addiction. And we, we are addicted to a lot of stuff. I mean, the addiction crisis, as I mentioned, is one of the issues. We're more and more finding ourselves addicted to more and more things, and there's more and more people that are exploiting us politically, economically, by getting us addicted. And the, the internet has algorithms that do that. Um, I think that this is a really, really important topic right now because PTSD is a household term. Yes. But post-traumatic growth, very few people have even heard of that. You know, the lack of awareness that things can be yes. great on the other side of difficult experiences. That just yeah. seems like a responsible thing to know yes. and to talk about. So. This is a serious concern of ours as we put this documentary out there is um, an invalidation or perception of an invalidation of an experience. People assuming that because we're talking about post-traumatic growth, PTSD doesn't exist or we're anti-PTSD. Oh no. And so I would love to talk to you about this or if you can explain a little yeah. bit about, um, or just, if I were to speak on behalf of that person right now, my echo chamber makes me feel heard. You know, I yeah. feel like I have a community when yes. I'm infertile and I'm seeing how hard other women have it. Too. Yes, yes. Yeah. That feels good, but to what extent and when does that become a negative experience for us? 
Right, and so uh, that's that's a really beautiful question. I, I that, that's well well framed, and a problem well framed is, uh, you know, the the the, the beginning of insight. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of variables, and and the and this is not to derail what we're doing, but the, the literature on uh, you know post traumatic growth is going like the scientific literature is in this liminal place because we're sort of through first wave. And then there's been a second critical wave, and now people are coming out of that. And they're, so we're trying to get a more sophisticated answer to a very complex phenomenon. But let's go back to the, so I, 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 want, I want that as sort of the general frame in which we're, we're, we're talking about this. Let's go back to the, you know, what's the difference between a support group like AA and, and right, uh, an echo chamber? Because they do share important similarities. And so one of the things you, given what we've said, one of the things you should look for, or at least a set of things is you should look for, is your group actually promoting cognitive flexibility? Is it, is it promoting reciprocal opening? Is it helping you to gain more flexibility? Are you having more aha moments? Now the thing about these groups is they give you initial, oh, I didn't realize that the leprechauns were behind it all and stuff like that, right? So, right? Uh, and they give you sort of pseudo insights. So you have to ask yourself this question. Are the insights and the cognitive flexibility within the group transferring to your life outside of the group? So let me give you a really good analogy for this. Think about different kinds of video games, or let's comply one kind. I'm not saying all video games are like this. I'm not. But let's say one kind of video game and something like Tai Chi Chuan. And this was a transformative thing for me. Not the video games with the Tai Chi Chuan. Okay, so you know people, one of the reasons kids love video games is because video games are flow induction machines. They, they're, they're like jazz. They are reliable for putting people into the flow state, right? So within that world, they're just But you get video game addiction, and the WHO has designated it an addiction, when that doesn't transfer to your life. So the skills and the perspective, the states of consciousness and mind, their sense of identity and self, because you're manipulating those in video games, it's like a religion. Is that, is that percolating through the rest of your psyche? Is it permeating through your life? Is it transferring? When I was doing Tai Chi, and I started back in 91, before cell phones, right? The ancient times. I was in grad school. Like I said, I was doing the Tai Chi for cultivating wisdom. I was in grad school at the time. <laughs> and it's funny, because uh, when you're in grad school, you're always, you always feel like you're an imposter, right? Um, I don't really belong here. They're going to find out eventually, right? But people came up to me, my, 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 my friends, and, they, and I've been doing the Tai Chi like religiously in both senses of the word I was doing it every day for two or three hours a day and I was having all these amazing experiences you know the days when you you're as hot as fire and the days where you're as cold as ice and you're getting into the flow state and it's amazing but I was just I was just in that world they came up to me and they said what's up with you I said, what do you mean <laughs> they said you're different you're way more flexible in your thinking. You're way more empathetic in picking up on other people. You're way more balanced in your argumentation. And I realized, oh, the Tai Chi was moving beyond the martial art arena 
and it was percolating through my psyche, it was permeating through my lives, it was transforming. And that's because I wasn't just doing the Tai Chi Chuan, I was doing the psychologies, I was learning the philosophy of Taoism, and so it was like, and, you know, that's what religions do, they give you these, and it does that. That's my criteria. If you're in your support group, and what's ever happening here, you, re you feel that it's percolating through your psyche in a way that's permeating through your life and opening up your life, then you've got a support group. If you feel it's taking you down and you're getting locked in and you can only find that in the group, then you're moving towards an addiction. You're moving towards spirituality. You're moving towards a cult. Now those are on a continuum. I present them as opposites for contrast, but we, they're on a continuum. And there's going to be stuff in the gray zone. It's going to be, I'm not sure. And I get that. And that's going to take discernment and discussion and reflection. But that's how I would say, is it open? Are you reciprocally opening comprehensively about, across more and more in your life? Are your, are your existing relationships getting better? Are you feeling more in touch with reality? Are you able to cultivate new friendships? Are you able to cultivate new virtues? The answer is yes. Chances are you have a support group. If the answer to those is increasingly, if those is increasingly no, chances are you're locking, you're locking into an echo chamber. Amazing, thank you. Okay, last question for me, because um, I'm hogging all your time here, um, <laughs> is are there any other areas of research that if you had another you <laughs> that could explore whatever and you just don't have time for right now, is there any like, like epigenetics or something that feel like could be a really cool thread to go down with your work? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I, I joke with my colleagues, um, like my dear friend Dan Chappie, we've published a bunch of stuff together. We're always working together. I don't know if you know it, but there's a, there's a science fiction classic show called Doctor Who, and he has the TARDIS, which is, you know, trans-dimensional and all this. I want a TARDIS where I can go in there and be outside time and space and do a bunch of stuff and then come back out. There... I have to tell you, Jessica, there's so many books that I'm, I'm like, I'm currently reading about 30 books at a time. It's a skill I've been cultivating for like three decades. I don't recommend it for anybody as a novice. But even that, I feel like just, I, I, I look at all the books I'm not reading and I go, I need to know this because, you know, I'm more ignorant than, 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 than I have knowledge. Um, I would like to know a lot more about neuroscience. I would like to know a lot more uh, about uh, like I, I I've studied some I've studied both from the outside as an academic and from the inside as a practitioner Taoism and Buddhism Christianity Neoplatonism Stoicism but there's a whole bunch like I don't know very much about Islam not enough about Judaism not enough about uh, lots of aspects of uh, Hinduism Vedanta the indigenous stuff I know a bit about shamanism but to equate that to indigenous culture is like terrifically racist and ethnocentric so I, I admit that I'm mostly ignorant I want to know I just I, yeah like so I, the hard neuroscience up to uh, you know you know the, the cultural anthropology those are the two ends of my where I feel that I need to know more. That's where, uh, I mean, I need to fill in a lot in between. That sounded arrogant and pretentious. But where I feel the gap most prominently is, is on those ends. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much.